I do have patients who come in and they're they are just like, well, how many can I have? Yeah. You know, how many beers can I have? Hello and welcome to Brain Boy Neurology. I'm your host, Jamie Holloman. Let's get started. Welcome to Brain Boy Neurology, the podcast where we explore clinical neurology through discussions with experts in the field. Today we'll be talking about a foundational topic in clinical neurology, the workup and management of a first-time seizure. This is one of the most common consults we get on the Neurology Consult Service, and so it pays to know a ton about workup and management of seizures. Our guest today is the incredible Dr. Brian Day, an epileptologist here at WashU. Dr. Day got his MD and PhD from the University of Kentucky and completed his residency and fellowship training here at WashU. He currently works treating patients with seizure disorders. Before we get into today's topic, I wanted to share my own experience with seizures. I'm hoping that this will give a little bit of context for our discussion. I have a diagnosis of epilepsy, and I've had two seizures in my life. The first one occurred when I was 16 years old. For the first one, I remember that it took place on a Saturday. I had stayed up pretty late the night before with some buddies, and on Saturday morning, my friend's dad picked us up and took us on a road trip. We had planned this ahead of time, and so it was poor planning on my part to not sleep at all. When we first woke up, I was tired but super excited for the trip. Once we got to our location, we Went to find a place to eat some breakfast. I remember walking around this small town, and we all found this cozy-looking restaurant. I went to push open the door to to go inside and start eating, and then I blacked out. I then woke up in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. I I woke up pretty startled um, because it was the same time that the EMTs were injecting me with an IV of Narcan. Uh, The fact that I coincidentally woke up as soon as they gave me Narcan, which is a drug that reduces the effect of opioids, uh, made all the doctors in this small-town ED incredibly suspicious that I was a heroin addict. And so I got asked lots of direct questions about drug use. I don't remember much of my ED stay after that, other than the fact that everyone was incredibly stressed out and that I was super, super tired. All all I really wanted to do was sleep. Uh, Suffice it to say, this ruined the road trip. And eventually I was discharged from this ED after my workup didn't show any abnormalities or provoking factors. As we'll discuss in this interview, that meant that I wasn't started on any medications. I felt a little shaken up over the event, but otherwise felt normal. And about two months later, I I woke up on a Sunday to go to church with my mom. She, of course, likes to go to the very early mass at 745. I I woke up and I was in the bathroom brushing my teeth and then Once again, I I just blacked out and and lost consciousness. Uh, Woke up in the hospital, and and this time it it got a more extended workup, including a brain MRI and an EEG. And I was started on a medication called Keppra, which is the neurologist's best friend. It's it's one of our most widely prescribed medications. I I don't remember much about the neurologist who who diagnosed me uh, with epilepsy, other than the fact that he was not a people person. The only real direct comment he made to me was that I needed to work on my balance. And he said this kind of offhand when I stumbled doing the tandem gait exam. Not the best advice for a new kid diagnosed with a strange disorder. Nothing was said about what epilepsy is or what causes it or what the prognosis is. Nothing like that. I then took at Keppra for many years. And then after college, when I had been seizure-free for about five years, I I worked with my new neurologist to trial myself off all seizure medications. This 
is not something that's necessarily possible for all patients with epilepsy, but it was something I wanted to try. I haven't had a seizure since that second seizure, and um, hopefully it continues to be that case. So that was my personal adventure into the world of neurology. I, I like to think that it helps me appreciate the patient's perspective a little bit more nowadays. So with that, let's get into our interview with the awesome Dr. Day, where we discuss the management of first-time seizure. So I'm sitting here with Dr. Day. Dr. Day, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. So uh, the topic today that I wanted to discuss is uh, management of new onset seizures. Uh, but before we get into that, I, I thought I'd ask you a couple of questions about your own career and get to know you a little bit more. Broad question to start out with, what initially got you interested in neurology? Uh, that probably goes back to sophomore year of college. Um, I wasn't, uh, well, you know, smart kid. I guess we're all pretty smart physicians growing up, but uh, I felt like I understood things pretty well. But the, but how the brain worked, how the cells of the brain, you know, provided function and consciousness and those sorts of things were pretty, you know, something I didn't understand very well. So I had the opportunity as a sophomore um, in college to take a neurobiology course, and I was really interested in that. And that kind of got mm-hmm. You know, the juice is flowing a little bit. Not that uh, that's what I necessarily wanted to do as a career after that, right out of the gates. You know, I did. I worked um, for a couple of years out of school. I just really wanted to do research biology. Mm-hmm. It just so happened I kind of fell into or fell in with this group. You know, at that time, the Internet's not like it is now. This was 1997. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so dating myself. But... Um, yeah, um, when I went back home to Kentucky after I graduated from college in Boston, um, I, uh, I was looking for a job, thinking about what I'm going to do. And the only place I knew where I could go on the Internet and find job listings was the uh, US OPM. Um, mm. <laughs> so the Office of Personnel Management. So I was looking for, I, I was looking for NIH jobs. I was looking for um, just other kind of jobs. I kind of fell into this job with uh, – uh, the Department of Defense, actually, mm-hmm. working at uh, Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences, which is the military medical school. Yeah. And, uh, and that's in Bethesda on the Naval Base with uh, the Bethesda, uh, Bethesda Naval Medical Center. So um, I was working for an Army doctor who was a lieutenant colonel. He was a, the Army's premier or possibly only neurointensivist at that mm-hmm. time. And he has, his research interests were in neuroinflammation. And so... That's what really got me thinking about neurology more and really thinking about maybe being a doctor more, which I wasn't really thinking I was going to do at that point. That's so, yeah. And so that's how I got into it. He, it was really, you know, his mentorship as far as getting me that next step into medical school and then thinking about neurology as a career. That was, you know, seeing him, I actually got a chance to see him at Walter Reed um, examining patients in the ICU. Mm-hmm. And for some, at, at my age at that time, that was you know, one of those kind of like, you know, light bulb goes off, awesome moments to see that happen. But Yeah, I can imagine. And I think if it's, if you've never really been exposed to the medical profession too, just having that little bit of a window to someone who's doing something incredibly cool, just profoundly can affect you. Did, how many years did you work then before going to medical school? So I worked for two years. Um, and, and, and they, you know, I worked with, with him. His name was Lieutenant Colonel Jeff Wing. I didn't mention his name. Um, but, uh, you know, he's been on 60 minutes for, you know, the most advanced prosthesis, prosthetic limb and other things like that. He works with mm-hmm. DARPA, which is the research arm of the department of defense mm-hmm. to do all these projects. So, um, 
But uh, but yeah, so working with him and working with uh, some other Army doctors, really it was pretty much all branches of the military. Uh, pulmonary fellows were coming through and doing rotations through his lab. And so I got to kind of be the lab guy who was helping those guys do it on, during their rotation. And mm-hmm. um, so they kind of, you know, pushed me out of the nest a little bit after a couple of years. They were ready for me to move on. So they were inspiring mm-hmm. me to, to do that. So I only worked for about two years before um, before I applied, was applying and went on to, to medical school. Fantastic. And then you went to medical school at the University of Kentucky. Yeah, I was living in Maryland. Um, I could have stayed in Baltimore. I actually got in. Um, I applied really late because I wasn't a pre-med. I didn't know the timing of anything. I didn't really have, you know, good direct mentorship or how to get into medical school or things like that. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I applied. I just looked at the applications and said, oh, this needs to be turned in by this date. So I'll turn it in. If I got there like the day of or the, the week before or something like that, I thought yeah. I was fine. <laughs> only to find out during interviews that I was like way behind. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, but I, I got into University of Maryland, Baltimore, and I got in at, at UK. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I have, you know, being from Kentucky, uh, I had a lot of family, some family members getting older. And so I felt compelled to go back home. Makes sense. And you did both an MD and a PhD at University of Kentucky. I did. You know, when I got to... When I got to UK, I didn't even know if they had an MD-PhD program. I, mm-hmm. I kind of figured that out. They didn't have an MSTP program, but kind of figured out they had an MD-PhD program when I got there. And so I approached the, the program director and when I was a fir- my first year. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, actually did well enough in medical school to get a scholarship for MD-PhD scholarship like during medical school. Oh, wow. So Fantastic. Yeah. And was that sparked from interest working in the lab of the neurointensivist or just sort of a scientific curiosity? What drove you to the PhD? Um, well, yeah, um, I think, uh, you know, Jeff Wang was an MD, PhD. And um, I think, you know, the I, I always wanted to be a researcher, right? That was my mm-hmm. original plan out of college was to be a research biologist. So mm-hmm. I thought that, you know, the, getting the PhD, um, that part of it was just like, that's who... I'm supposed to be, you know, that's the kind of feeling that I had is I've, of course I'm going to go down this road because that's what I'm supposed to be. That's kind of how I was mentored. Yeah. Um, and so it, it didn't, you know, it, it was never like really a, a lot of thought put into it or anything like that. As soon as I found out they had an MD, MD PhD program, I just wanted to go find out more about it mm-hmm. and see if that was something that uh, I could get involved in. And it wound up, you know, being great. Um, uh, it's always unusual. I think probably there's a lot of MD, PhD folks out there that you step away from one class of people that you kind of go through a battle with as you go through the first two years of medical school, then you come back to a totally different class and they don't even know who you are. Yeah. So Uh, that's really odd. But, um, (laughs) but yeah, no, I, I always wanted to be a researcher in some way, shape or form, um, especially at that point in my life. And, you know, at this point in my, in my career, it's a little bit different. I, I don't do a lot of research anymore, but I still have research interest in a lot of interest in academic medicine and evidence-based medicine and things like that. Absolutely. What did you study for your PhD? Uh, so it was another one of those aha moments. I was in a lecture hall listening to um, uh, the lecturer. His name was uh, Greg Gerhardt. And he was uh, showing uh, these non-human primates and, uh, and giving uh, this, uh, this dopaminergic, it was a GDNF, I believe, yeah, um, glial-derived neurotraffic factor. For, and directly into parts of the basal ganglia. Uh-huh. And so it was you know, taking these aged non-human primates um, who were struggling 
to reach like through a plexiglass area and pick up a piece of food so they could eat. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, showing after they were treated that how much better they could move. So aging is, is one of the models that people use sometimes for Parkinson's disease. Mm-hmm. So, was, so he ran, he was one of the Morris K. Udall Parkinson's disease research centers of excellence um, in the country. So he also had microelectrode work. So he worked with, you know, using pumps, using technology to, to pump uh, drugs and other kind of uh, factors into the brain um, to see how that, if you could modulate function that way uh, mm. for Parkinson's. Wow. And he also had this other side because he was, he was a trained chemist, but he worked a lot with engineers and he had this whole lab setup where he worked on, he built his own electrodes. So a lot of those electrodes were like carbon fiber electrodes that he used to study monoamines, so dopamine and neuropinephrine and, mm. and even serotonin to some degree. But he had, right before I, you know, and when I saw that video for him, you know, it was just kind of, I walked up to him at the end of that lecture and I said, hey, mm-hmm. you know, do you have a lab? Do you take on graduate students? Yeah. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, went right from there. Yeah. So, and that's, that's basically how I decided to go to neurosciences mm-hmm. uh, for my PhD as opposed to, you know, I had done neuroinflammation work. So it was kind of between neurology and, and immunology actually a little bit. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I got in with his lab and when I transitioned from medical school to graduate school, um, he had just, uh, they had just kind of come out with a new electrode that was a ceramic based, um, platinum microelectrode array so mm-hmm. that you would implant directly into the brain. Uh-huh. And it was uh, enzyme coded to measure, uh, things that typically don't, uh, have any sort of, uh, uh, reactivity on a metal surface or a carbon surface. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, the, but the enzyme uh, coding broke down chemicals like glutamate mm-hmm. into uh, things that you could measure on the metal surface mm-hmm. uh, using amperometry. So, and specifically in that case, chrono amperometry. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I got a chance to kind of get out on the ground floor of this new emerging technology that had just been developed from his laboratory um, to do a, a glutamate recordings um, mm-hmm. in a lot of these animal models. Uh, so I had uh, done some work with. Um, rats and and actually uh, non-human primates myself. Fascinating. Yep. What was the experience like working with non-human primates? Yeah, well, I didn't get, a, get too close to them. I was it was mostly they they had a really nice setup there. Um, it was uh, in collaboration with another researcher there, Don Gash. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, uh, you know they had a, a surgeon there, Dr. Zhang, and, um, and they had a whole OR suite down uh-huh. there where they did the implantations and I would go into the OR and while they were anesthetized, I would do the recordings. Wow. Gotcha. And what type of, do you remember the type of non-human primates were those? Uh, Rhesus macaques. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. It seems like a, a whole different, I do a little bit of um, animal milling in Greg Wu's lab, but we just use the tiny mice and I imagine just the physiology that you're dealing with, with a macaque monkey has got to be so, so much more complex and the amount of experiments you can do so much uh, more interesting yeah, right and you know the brains are so much more developed and and closer to you know what we think about for you know you want to translate these things into you know cures and some sort of medical advancement for humans so yeah you know, or just understand the human brain more and in different uh, different settings i think that was really still an aging uh, they were both look, looking at uh, young versus aged uh, monkeys uh, for changes in, in neurotransmission so yeah that's super fascinating. And then uh, you came and did a neurology residency here at WashU. And uh, while you were in residency, what uh, eventually pushed you towards epilepsy? 
Yeah, so none of that really was all that related to epilepsy, except for the fact that glutamate was. So I started to, uh, toward the end of my PhD, I was starting to look into, you know, my, maybe it may, would have made more sense the whole time to do glutamate research in epilepsy models, but we really mm-hmm. didn't do that because it was a Parkinson's lab. Mm-hmm. But toward the end, it was starting to open up a little bit uh, to epilepsy models. And there was a, another graduate student who was kind of taking over for me as I was graduating the work, and that was t- starting to transition to epilepsy. So there's a little bit there, mm-hmm. but um, not that much. So, you know, everybody <laughs> fills out their um, their interests when they first become a resident, you put it on the website and that sort of thing. Yeah. So epilepsy wasn't listed on mine. <clears throat> you know, I'd had experience with uh, neurocritical care and movement disorders, so I kind of had those on there just from before. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it was probably more having to do with just the fact that you just got a lot of exposure. Um, mm-hmm. Got a lot of exposure to um, epilepsy patients, inpatient and in the clinic, um, and I knew that I wanted to know more about EEG. And when I was a resident, you know, our, the class ahead of us and behind us lost a resident. Mm. So they actually added a resident to our class to kind of make up for the people above and, be, above and behind us. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we, we were, it was usually eight, and we wound up with nine that year. And mm. we got to do more neural ICU time and, and like ER and consult time and things like that. And we had no EEG at all. Mm. in our PGY2 year. Oh, wow. So as soon as the PGY2 year was over, I knew I wanted to learn more about EEG. And so I mm. scheduled that for like the very first month of PGY3 year. Mm. And that was in some ways so similar to what I had done with the signal processing that I, for the, my PhD work, uh, right? And so in yeah. many ways mm. um, that um, that side of it was really attractive um, but then I'd had all the patient exposures too. They were also very attractive, you know, and kind of made sense. You know, the group that I was working with there. So, you know, when working in epilepsy here and working with the neurodiagnostic teams, so, you know, there's all the techs and the attendings and the secretaries and the nurse and the uh, kind of the nurses that are associated with it and the administrators. So, you know, I don't know if you guys get a sense for that now, but back then it was really like a family kind of group. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of fell in with that family early, you know, pretty easily early on. Mm. And so everything was just kind of clicking on a couple yeah. different levels mm-hmm. uh, for me. And, and so I decided uh, that I wanted to uh, do the epilepsy fellowship. And, mm. and I was, you know, fortunate to get that. And there were six of us out of the nine who stayed here for fellowship. And, oh, we, wow. and none of us competed with each other. We all had different things we were interested in. That's it. It really, yeah. uh, how that all worked out, I'm not sure. But yeah. Um, and then at the end of fellowship, you know, I was, just, you, know, you know, I was, I didn't know, you know, I wasn't looking for jobs, you know, now that I'm the fellowship program director, I see my fellows looking for jobs, like sometimes even before they come to fellowship. Oh, wow. <laughs> but it was not something that I was even thinking about. Yeah. I was just, uh, I was, you know, wanting to stay in academic medicine. And so I was hoping to like, maybe I could be someplace like this place. It was like, well, just stay here. <laughs> yeah. Makes sense. You're, you're doing well already. It's, it's a cozy spot and. I could definitely see that too with um, EEG is kind of, as you said, like a big family. You got the technicians, you've got sort of the people interpreting the EEGs as you're reading it. And that's sort of a 24 seven operation too. So probably people um, coming in and out. So I could definitely see that closeness. And especially when that's tied to your scientific interest, it's yeah, definitely makes sense. Yeah, no, it, it clicked on a many, many different cylinders. So mm-hmm. um I was more, you know, in clinic, I was mostly, I wasn't as interested in movement disorder anymore. No, no dig on that. But, mm. uh, but I was, uh, 
definitely. And, and Parkinson's disease, in some ways, is not too different from epilepsy. We both have you know connections with surgery, right? Mm. Um, and uh, and surgical, probably kind of pre-surgical workups, and uh, and those were, which was interesting to me too. Going back to you know neurosurgical rotation in medical school, and and in fact, you know, that was one of the things I considered was being a neurosurgeon instead of a neurologist. You know, coming coming out of medical school, but mm-hmm. um, but no, I didn't. I opted for the the one that had uh, a lower um, lower percentage of divorce rate. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> The way to go. I think it makes sense. <laughs> but, I, but surgery, I did surgery a lot. Um, actually, going back to my years before medical school, working um, in that neuro neuroinflammation lab, um, and then also in my PhD work. And and you know, I, I've always had a, an, a, an affinity for neurosurgery. Mm-hmm. So to uh, to maintain that part of that in some way, shape, or form, and there was actually a part of that of my PhD thesis. Mm. Where someone moving that glutamate electrode into actual uh, the human OR, um, oh. so there was a, that was like the last phase of it. Mm. I didn't quite um, actually get it into a human, or I got it into excised human brain tissue. Mm. Uh, so that was you know that's one thing. Yeah, um, but, uh, but definitely uh, you know was was heading that direction. So um, so again, epilepsy hit on many many different uh, interests of mine. Yeah. Before we transition to a case, something I, I like to ask everyone I interview is if you have a non-medical recreational activity that you, you recommend or like to do. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, my, my, uh, my mind is active enough, um, <laughs> my job, which eats up a lot of my time. Mm-hmm. So I like to have things that I can escape to, right? So there's a couple mm-hmm. of, you know, I guess that's one of the best non-recreational things that you can do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So <laughs> probably my escapes... Uh, or my recreational escapes are uh, are music mm-hmm. and uh, and cooking probably. Oh, okay. Yeah. So okay. you know, I I'm a I'm a self taught guitar player um, from freshman year of college, mm-hmm. um, and obviously being self taught, I hit a hit a wall at some point where I, I don't think I've really advanced much more. But mm-hmm. uh, but my kids, I have three kids, and they're all very musical, very mm-hmm. artsy and musical. Mm-hmm. Uh, they all play guitar, ukulele. They all play piano. Some of them sing, including oh, wow. yeah. um, clarinet, saxophone, cello, violin, viola. Wow. Um, many, many instruments in our house. We've got kind of a little bit of a band there. Yeah. So, and, and then just, you know, listening to music, right? So just different artists that I like. So mm-hmm. that's good. But I've gotten, you know, over the years, and certainly I wasn't like, never, nothing, nothing, I don't know how this all kind of transpired. I think just... Being a parent and having to cook for your family, having to cook for your, you know, when you get married, having to cook for your wife or what have you, mm-hmm. you know, I wanted to uh, start to really get into that a little bit more. And so I've got a little repertoire of things that I do. I feel like I do a pretty good job with. Um, and when you're cooking, you know, it's just like, it's it's, it's escape, really. You know, yeah. To get into that, you're, you're not really focused on the problems of the world or what's going on in your life. You're just focused on making that meal and, and getting on the table and, and, you know, if it's a good meal and you've really done a good job, you know, it's such a relaxing, fun thing. Everybody enjoys that, right? Yeah. So it's a fun time. Um, yeah. And to go along with that a little bit, you know, there's, um, you know, the tasting menus that go along with like drinks that go along with. So I got into a little bit of mixology, nice. especially this time last year. I was uh, pretty into it. I need to, uh, I need to kind of get back into that actually. Yeah. <laughs> 
Those all sound incredible. Those are all good yeah. things to talk about at a at a party too. Like if nobody, no, yeah. music, food, and drink. Nobody's going to have any problem talking about that at a party yeah. or a recruiting interview. Or yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you're always going to find someone who's who would love to chat with you sure. about that music yeah. and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm I'm getting married in May. Have this anxiety about now becoming a married man and just being able to cook for my wife or myself and. I'm horrible at cooking and I can, I can do it if I like find a recipe I like and kind of sit down and actually concentrate. But I don't know if you're at the stage where you can kind of just go in the kitchen and sort of have like a general idea of a dish and then be able to throw some spices together. Are you sort of at that point where you can? Um, yes. To, so for some things, yes. But uh, mm-hmm. for some of the more complicated, if it's like technique based or or, or baking where it's like really more chemistry or something like that, then mm-hmm. you st- I still have to follow a recipe and make mm-hmm. sure I'm doing it the right way. I, sometimes I try to go off script and it doesn't turn out the way I'd hoped. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's common, common phenomenon with, with me. Well, I think that's a, a good transition point to, to talk about our, our case of the day. Sure. Um, so the, the general topic, as I mentioned when we started, is a evaluation of a patient with a new onset seizure. This is a, a consult that's probably the second most common consult um, on our consult service. I think the first one probably being uh, encephalopathy. And uh, so it's something that came up a ton for me in the second and third year. So I've got a case and kind of a couple questions that um, I struggled with or I've never had answered before that I hope you can shed a little bit of light on. We'll just start off. I'll I'll read the case for us. So this is a patient, uh, Mr. Oklahoma. He's a 55-year-old gentleman uh, who comes to the ED after having two generalized tonic-clonic seizures at home. Uh, He's got no history of prior seizures. His wife observed one of these events and called 911. Uh, She's in the ED and she's able to provide some collateral. Uh, She states that uh, he was in his usual state of health until today when she heard a thud from his bedroom. Uh, She went up to try to figure out what had happened and found him lying on the floor shaking. Uh, She says that both his arms and his legs were shaking at the time. Uh, She also noticed that he had urinated in his jeans. After a few minutes, the episode seemed to resolve, and he started waking up. Um, He was then sleepy and confused afterwards. Uh, She helped him out of bed and helped him get cleaned up before coming into the hospital. Um, But while she was uh, cleaning him up in the shower, he started having another seizure. This she describes as him falling to the ground and shaking uh, both in his arms and his legs again. The episode lasted a couple minutes and then resolved. At this point, his wife called 911, and EMS brought him to the hospital. Uh, His past medical history is pertinent for asthma, coronary artery disease, diabetes, uh, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, and osteoporosis. His medications include aspirin, Plavix, inhaler for his asthma, ranitidine, and Valsartan. And then when he gets to the ED, he's sleepy and confused. Um, But as you observe him over the next couple hours, he becomes slowly more alert. And then by the time you uh, see him and, and conduct your neurological exam, his wife says he's pretty much back to baseline. And uh, I thought a good place to start would be uh, with a definition for what a, a seizure is. And do you have a, a typical way that you like to explain seizures to your patients? <clears throat> yeah, you know what? Defining seizures is actually not super easy. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, a, there's the International League Against Epilepsy. Uh, probably the person on the league who's published those, so that's uh, Robert Fisher. You can define it many different ways. The way that you'll read about it sometimes is a hypersynchronized amount of electrical discharges in the brain that cause a clinical sign or symptom. Obviously, mm-hmm. that doesn't explain subclinical seizures, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, right? Yeah. Uh, but uh, the way I explain it to, to patients, um, it really is that you know that you you know 
you can think about the brain that run, it runs on electricity mm-hmm. and that it has to be regulated in a certain way. It has to be timed in a certain way. So you can have short circuits in the brain or you can have mistimed events in the brain and the brain can misfire or spark mm-hmm. or have a short circuit. Um, and then that can fire repeatedly. And if you fire repeatedly in the brain, sometimes that can, you know, that spark can turn into a fire kind of, mm-hmm. um, and that fire may spread. Right. Mm-hmm. So the spark and the fire thing comes up pretty well. If I've got a, you know, somebody who's, uh, a little more mechanically oriented, I might talk about the timing belt of your car or the distributor cap for your spark plugs or things like that. And they can mm. kind of understand how things, you know, things can run on electricity without running out of control. But if you get the timing off, how it can not work properly or, mm-hmm. or over or over fire or things like that. But so usually, but, you know, basically I'll tell them, you know, you have, you have electricity, your brain runs electricity and that electricity can, can become overactive. And if it becomes overactive, it can create symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do also tell them that, you know, sometimes, you know, seizures can, you know, take off and they can take over a big area of the brain and you can have a lot of big symptoms or they can stay in one spot of the brain and give you little symptoms. Mm. And, that, and that can still be the same, um, basically the same seizure, just differences in how far it spread and how big it got. Mm-hmm. So uh, people usually understand that pretty well. And that could also be a way that you can tell them like about medicines, you know, to bring that fire into control and contain that electrical, contain the electricity so it doesn't spread too far too fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I really like that analogy of spark and fire. I feel like that's pretty intuitive and, and easy to understand. And so, something that will come up all the time on the consult service is we'll get consulted, not necessarily in a case like this, um, but in one where there's just kind of nonspecific shaking. The patient maybe lost consciousness or was found down, and some shaking was was noted. And then I always feel like the challenge is trying to differentiate, okay, was that shaking because maybe they had a seizure or shaking uh, from another source? Any thoughts on questions you can ask on your history or things to sort of evaluate for when you're trying to differentiate between those two? I I try to get a lot of context, you know. So for all new patients that I meet in clinic, and and this could also be in the trauma bay, in the ER, or other places, Mm -hmm. um, it's nice to, you know, talk to the patient first and then have a collateral source there. Because usually I want to start with the patient because I want them to tell me what they experience. You know, if they experience any warning signs, if they experience any initial symptoms before they lost consciousness, for example. Because mm-hmm. that can tell me a, a, you know, more about, you know, if you're dealing with seizure versus syncope versus TIA versus migraine or other things. Because those initial aura type elements mm-hmm. can be really helpful, even when you're talking about like shaking, mm-hmm. right? <clears throat> so I try to get as much of that early experience that I can. And then usually the patients, for somebody who has convulsions or some kind of shaking, they usually have lost conscious. They're, they're not going to be able to tell you too much at some point. Uh, but the collateral source, you know, for that person, because the person themselves shaking, sometimes they'll remember it mm-hmm. um, exactly where it was. And if they do, I will ask them exactly what was shaking. Uh, was it on one side or both sides? Did it involve your head, arms, and legs, or just your head and arms? Or, you know, exactly what was involved? Um, because that tells me more um, potentially as well. If it's a lot of leg shaking, if it's mostly leg involvement, that's very unusual mm. to be seizures because mm. you just think about the homunculus and seizures are usually on the outer part of the brain, right? So usually a big involvement of the hand and the face. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you think about the homunculus for things like the leg, unless you have like a mesial frontal seizure, which is not that common. Interesting. Right? Yeah. So seizures typically involve the head and the upper body and much less the lower body. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if people say their legs are just like going crazy, you know, that's, you know, could be a seizure, but it's probably not. You think about something else. Um, 
the warning sign can be helpful. Um, exactly what they're doing, if they're telling me that they're just kind of loosely flapping their hands or something like that, that's different than mm -hmm. what usually happens. You know, people typically stiffen and shake in a, in a particular type of way. You can ask about, you know, did you, did you go down, did you stiffen and shake and then fall down or did you just, you know, for like a witness or did you just, you know, lose cautious fall down and then you were shaking on the ground. Mm -hmm. And that can tell you, give you a little bit of, of a clue too. Mm -hmm. um, I, a lot of times we'll ask about, you know, when you're shaking, what's, what, you know, what were the arms doing? Were they stiffened out in front of you? Were they drawn up? Were they like this? I'll mm -hmm. actually mimic it a little bit to the people and see if that rings any bells. Mm -hmm. Uh, for things that people do with seizures. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes um, I'll, I'll, you know, kind of uh, ask about the head and the eyes too. So when you're shaking, is your head turning to one side or your eyes looking to one side? Mm -hmm. Because that's probably, that. well, that is the forced head deviation. The forced head and eye deviation is the strongest semiological uh, characteristic that we have for seizures, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that could be many other things that you ask. But you try to get like you try to go into a lot of detail so you really understand what we're shaking. And sometimes I can't give you any of that detail. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. But when I can, it can be really helpful yeah. uh, to, to differentiate. And you kind of want to know, you know, I don't you know, the actual parts of the shaking, sometimes that can be really helpful. Sometimes if they can't tell you a lot, you need to get like the you know, the situation, like what was happening. Because mm -hmm. this is somebody who fell down on the ground and shook in the middle of a blood draw. Mm -hmm. Well, that's probably convulsive syncope, right? They have basal syncope and they mm -hmm. did some shaking on the ground um, versus somebody who was doing heroin or cocaine or something like that and they, then they stiffened on the ground and, and or, you know, bit their tongue and wet yeah. their pants and, you know, so there's, a, you know, you get the whole picture, but shaking can be hard and obviously you know, the biggest things you think about with shake with convulsions are going to be, you know, jaundice high clock seizures or secondary jaundice high clock seizures. Um, uh, convulsive syncope, which can be, doesn't have to be on both sides, can be, you know, one side or the other, um, and, um, and non-epileptic events. Mm -hmm. People do a lot of convulsions with non-epileptic events, so. Yeah. And, and if you can get a good description, sometimes people, you know, with non-epileptic events uh, will remember what they're shaking and what exactly is happening. So if they can tell you that they're pelvic thrusting or they're arching their back or, or things like that, which sometimes they can, that can mm -hmm. give you a lot of clues. Yeah. No, it definitely makes sense. And uh, how much stock do you put in things like um, uh, I stood up and got really lightheaded, or I had sort of a feeling of palpitations come on? I put a, uh, I put quite a bit of stock mm -hmm. in that. I mean, <clears throat> there are ways that people can have seizures and they can affect cardiac rhythms, and then they can actually have a seizure and then have a syncope. Mm -hmm. um, and I gave a grand rounds on ectolysis. Yeah, I remember the uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a fascinating. But those, thing. fortunately, that doesn't happen too often. Um, but yeah, I do. I give a lot of uh, a lot of um, credit to them. Tell me something like that. Uh, yeah, that's definitely going to buy somebody probably a video EEG admission to sort it out. Yeah, that makes um, sense. And you sort of referenced kind of differentiating uh, maybe epilepsy or epileptic seizures versus um, convulsive syncope versus non-epileptic events. And it seemed like uh, something at least with the non-epileptic events, kind of intact awareness, sort of these rhythmic uh, movements that aren't necessarily what you would think of like that you describe more of the shaking in the face or the hands or the typical reasons involved and more kind of irregular movements would be maybe one thing to, to point you towards more of a non-epileptic event uh yeah definitely i mean non-epileptic events you know people uh it's it's interesting that people don't always, you know don't always remember that's actually the more common thing is you mm -hmm. ask them after the fact what happened and they don't remember 
Mm-hmm. So you would think, I remember as a resident, I thought that, you know, people with non-oblivions would have preserved awareness and memory of everything that happened. Mm-hmm. So you could just go and talk to them. But I've done this many years now, and I and I still, to this day, will go up to somebody who I know had a non-oblivion event mm-hmm. and ask them what they remember about it. And it's rare they can tell me. Sometimes they can. Mm-hmm. But it's rare they can tell me what happened. Like, um, yeah. So, um, but if they can tell you what happened... Um, and you get a good description that sounds not like you would expect for a seizure, then that can be a pretty good clue. Um, I mean, obviously, video can be helpful. Sometimes I'll tell you, you know, if somebody has taken a, you know, these days everybody's got their cell phones. They pop on their cell phone and they, mm-hmm. uh, because descriptions don't do a lot of these things justice. And people describe things that are happened to them that didn't really happen. You know, I was shaking all over and you look at the video and they're just like a little bit shaky. They probably had a shaky feeling inside. They're not even barely moving. Yeah. Um, so you can, you can definitely get fooled or tricked by somebody who's telling you they're shaking when they just have an internal feeling of shaking. So the video and, or a witness can be really helpful for that. Yeah, absolutely. And for those who aren't as aware, so non-epileptic events, so those are I think not a fully understood phenomenon. It's sort of something where if you hook patients up and they're having a non-epileptic event, you won't see the typical features on the EEG, um, sort of the rhythmic activity in the cortex suggestive of an underlying epileptic cause. But it's, in my review of the literature, not exactly sure all of the things that are causing non-epileptic events. I don't know if you have a specific uh, thought on... Yeah, so the non-epileptic, I, mean, I use the term non-epileptic events. I mean, it's the old term is pseudo-seizures and the medical term in the literature is psychogenic non-epileptic seizures. So they still have seizure in the, in the, in the medical term, which I don't think is um, great because you tell patients that they still think they're having seizures and they just remember and then tell that to the ER doctor the next time that they had a seizure. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I try to use something that's not, I don't put psychogenic in there because it's, people that study non-epileptic events wonder about the use of that term because it doesn't seem necessarily like it's always you know psychogenic it's not really coming from um their psyche per Mm se um and people debate whether it's something they can't control versus some kind of reaction um or some kind of a behavior it's probably in my estimation after going through and with the fellows i think doing the teaching and looking at a lot of um experts in the field that have lectured about this the literature they've gone over is that it's it's probably best thought of as more of a behavioral phenomenon mm. than anything else. <clears throat> so it's a, like a maladaptive type of behavior. It's still something they don't mm. have control over. So it's not the same thing as malingering. You know, malingering is difficult, but occasionally you'll find a malinger or somebody who is actively faking these things mm. that are happening. Mm. Um, and we ha- I have <clears throat> had people the, in the monitoring unit who try to obscure the camera so we can't see oh, them man. while they like pat their head to, <laughs> to create yeah. a rhythmic artifact on the EG leads and, uh, and things like that. But, thanks. but these people, you know, you shouldn't think about them as faking. You shouldn't think about them as crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, that's not, that's not what they are. This is, this is a most likely a behavioral uh, response to mm-hmm. a variety of things. You know, there can mm-hmm. be uh, for non-epileptics um, things in their past. I mean, you know, people that have a psychiatric illness or have mild, uh, mild TBI, with especially with PTSD, you know they're going to be at higher risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, young women who've been sexually abused, or really anybody that's been abused, um, people that have suffered through, you know, a middle-aged man going through a financial crisis. There's a couple of the list of the common examples, but mm-hmm. it could be anything. It could just be, you know, um, just the normal stresses of life. Um, mm-hmm. uh, when when 
there's one neuropsychologist in Baltimore who, you know, we, we watch his lecture every year, but uh, he's gone back and looked at this quite, uh, quite a lot, and he has a clinic for, for non-epileptic patients. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, if you go back and look at people with epilepsy versus people that don't have epilepsy, um, in terms of the number of, of major stressors in their life, mm-hmm. um, there's no difference. But if mm-hmm. you look at how they react to those stressors, there's a huge difference. Interesting. Um, uh, and and <clears throat> compared to normal individuals, actually, not about just epilepsy in terms of how they report how much stress it gives them is actually not that different. Mm. Um, but uh, versus mm. somebody who doesn't have epilepsy or doesn't have non-epileptic events, it's quite a bit different. Fascinating. So they, they, they have this this overactive response to things that mm. maybe you and I wouldn't react to quite as strongly. Mm. That's really helpful to know. And, and to me, just it seems like a, a fascinating disorder. And as you mentioned, for a lot of um, patients can be very disabling. And so trying to get better treatments and a better understanding would, would be huge. And, and so uh, for our gentleman, Mr. Oklahoma, it's something that I always um, think about when I approach patients in the ED is the idea of a provoked versus an unprovoked seizure. Um, I don't know if you could chat a little bit about what those two terms mean. So basically somebody who has a, an unprovoked seizure, it's the same thing as saying they had a spontaneous seizure. Like they had a seizure that was that started in the brain for with no cause, right? There was nothing that you could point your finger to and say, this is what caused it. Mm-hmm. Um, for a provoked seizure, there's, there's a cause. There's been something has happened to that, that person that caused them to have a seizure. Now that could be a medicine, that could be a metabolic disturbance, that could be a structural change in the brain, there could be other reasons uh, for it. Mm-hmm. So uh, low blood sugar, you know, so you have your electrolyte abnormalities like sodium, um, calcium, magnesium, um, all those, even um, phosphorus can do it, kind of extreme uh, reasons, and obviously glucose. Mm-hmm. So that's probably one of the biggest things that you always have to think about is somebody can have a hypoglycemic seizure. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can have a hypoglycemic syncope too, but they can mm-hmm. also have a hypoglycemic seizure. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, those sorts of things are, are really important. People that have chronic illness and they have kidney disease or liver disease or other things like that, they could have enough metabolic derangement related to that to have a seizure. Um, mm-hmm. And if you're in that situation, and then, you know, kind of, well, you don't even have to have anything like that. You could have somebody who stayed up for days on end because, you know, mm-hmm. finals week and they're a college student and they had all these finals in a row and they, they didn't get any sleep. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, then they go out and have some beers to celebrate being done with finals and have a seizure. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so all that's mm-hmm. possible. Yeah. Uh, or cocaine or amphetamines or, you know, mm-hmm. things, especially if they're using things like that to stay up, if they're using uh, Adderall, abusing Adderall to stay up or, mm-hmm. um, uh, methamphetamine, marijuana can do it in some cases. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So essentially all uh, these different factors that sort of push someone above the seizure threshold and induce a seizure but aren't an identifiable thing that, that probably contributed. And and in my mind, that's sort of how I think about patients when I'm seeing the ED. Can I, one, identify a, a, the provoking factor? And that's sort of then how I uh, will think about my diagnostic tests, as you mentioned looking for things like hypoglycemia, um, uh, hyponatremia, hypernatremia, hypocalcemia, um, and other uh, electrolyte derangements, asking about drug histories and medications. When you think about medications, more prescription medications that might induce seizures, are there certain um, players that you think about that come up frequently or or certain classes of medications? 
yeah, I think probably the most common is just uh, withdrawal seizures, right? Mm-hmm. So withdrawing from alcohol or withdrawing from benzodiazepines, that's mm-hmm. probably highest on the list of uh, drug-induced seizures kind of in the opposite direction. But in terms of a drug that you're taking to cause a seizure, probably, I think probably the third most common after those two is uh, bupropion, mm-hmm. right? Well, butrin. Yeah. Uh, other antidepressants can do it, but the risk of the other antidepressants doing it is, is much lower. Um, so that is one medicine I'll tell my patients to avoid or look seek an alternative for. If somebody wants to put on bupropion, I'll tell them to maybe see if they'll if they if the doctor prescribing can try something else for them. Makes sense. Um, and uh, and then there's a long list of other things, right? So you could you could have antibiotics that can do it. The one that comes up in the hospital all the time is cefepime. So mm. there's a you know, cefepime that can cause neurotoxicity. It has a very distinct uh, atypical triphasic look on the EEG and can certainly even cause seizures. Mm. Um, other antibiotics can do it. Usually with antibiotics and antidepressants, it's a little bit hard though because, you know, as for somebody who, we're talking about provoked seizures here, but for somebody who already has seizures, getting those medicines is sometimes important because the alternative is they have, you know, have an infection or they have uncontrolled mood problems, which can also be triggers. But in terms of provoked seizures, you look for that. You can also look for people that are on uh, pain medicines. So Demerol um, mm-hmm. is a big one, Meperidine, um, and even Tramadol. So I'll tell my patients, like, if you hurt your knee or you hurt your back and your doctor wants to give you super Tylenol, Tramadol, don't take that. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe find something else to take. Mm-hmm. Um, um, other... Those are the biggest ones that I tell people to probably watch out for. Mm-hmm. Uh, marijuana, you know, then it's drugs of abuse, right? So I tell people, you know, drugs and alcohol can do it. Um, so amphetamines, cocaine, marijuana to some degree, stimulants. Um, for people with epilepsy who have ADHD or people who have ADHD, mm-hmm. they usually tolerate their, their stimulants, the, uh, their amphetamines, without causing seizures. And people that have epilepsy who have ADHD, which is a – we have a long – known history of people that have both conditions, um, they don't seem to have more seizures because they take their stimulants for ADHD. Mm-hmm. But if they abuse those stimulants or they take methamphetamine or something like that, then that can definitely do it. Mm-hmm. Um, heroin, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Theophylin. Uh, there's uh, many, uh, many medicines that could do it. Okay. Uh, those are the ones that I think of mostly that um, are more likely to do it. And if you had other ones that could do it, there's going to be a long laundry list of things and you can go into up to date or you can go to epilepsy.com, which is, you know, the epilepsy foundation. Um, and you can find long lists of medications that oh, yeah. could cause seizures. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you read that list, you wouldn't want to take anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but the ones that I, that I just went through there are probably the most common ones that you have to think about. Mm-hmm. And then does it matter whether or not patients have been on the medication long-term versus short-term? Like, say they were on something like Wellbutrin for five or six years without an event and then had a seizure, otherwise um, no provoking factors been identified. Would you necessarily attribute it to the Wellbutrin or worry about the Wellbutrin? I would probably worry less about it in that situation. Mm -hmm. Um, If if they've taken a medication for years and never had a problem and then had a seizure out of the blue, I don't know that I would just chalk it up to that. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, if they just started medication, you know, and immediately had a seizure, well, that's a little more believable mm-hmm. as a provoking factor. Um, I mean, people's seizure threshold can change as they age, though, and, mm-hmm. and certainly the pharmacology, their 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 pharmacokinetics of the medications 
well, just in aging, right? So you break down maybe if you started when you were 50 and now you're 70 and you had a seizure, well, maybe things have changed enough that actually that level has risen enough in your system to cause you to have that as a type of provoking, uh, provoke seizures to kind of like a side effect of being toxic on the medicine. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, there are situations where you could see that. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, but generally speaking, I mean, I don't know what your thoughts are on it or, you know, what you've come across in your reading, but I don't, I wouldn't, if somebody's been on a medicine for a long time without problems, I probably wouldn't, would look for other reasons. Yeah. Uh, and maybe initiate a workup for, uh, for a new onset seizures. Yeah. And that's the, the tact I usually take that uh, presume that if it had been a problem, it probably would have manifested early on. And especially if they're getting a benefit from the medication, really look for other causes before I, I think about switching them off. And, and you brought up an interesting point with the alcohol, um, given that that can be a provoking factor. Is there a certain way you counsel your seizure patients about alcohol consumption? Oh, it's uh, it's a question I get way too often. Actually, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just you know, alcohol is part of the social fabric of the world, including the United States, of course. Um, and we're in St. Louis, we're in Ezra Bushes, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> um, You're yeah, I, I do have patients who come in and they're and they are just like, well, how many can I have? Yeah. You know, how many beers can I have? <laughs> and, and I'm like, well, there's not a number I can tell you. Mm -hmm. um, First off, you're not supposed to mix alcohol with any seizure medicine. So for someone mm -hmm. who's already on seizure medicine, you're not supposed to mix those two. Mm -hmm. And second off, um, you know, alcohol can trigger seizures. Um, but I do tell them, you know, it's like, you know, you're an adult. You've got to decide how much risk you want to take on uh, mm -hmm. with this, right? Um, so for my epilepsy patients, you know, I say, you know, I would tell you that there's a lot of people out there who drink alcohol in moderation that doesn't give them a problem. I don't make a huge fuss about it. Mm -hmm. But as soon as they tell me that alcohol causes seizure, I put my foot down. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of provoking, you know, I think for alcohol to provoke a seizure, it's probably going to be when somebody's highly intoxicated mm -hmm. and probably not at a, what we would consider, you know, just being drunk, just, you know, beyond buzzed and drunk, but not not highly intoxicated. I don't have a number in my head how much that's going to be, but mm -hmm. uh, um, I know as you get up there in kind of like a, a 0.4, then you're talking about death. Yeah. So like <laughs> 0.2 to 0.4, probably, you know, that can all, all probably, and probably even close to 0.2 could provoke a seizure, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> above, above 0.1. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, and then, you know, for somebody to have a withdrawal seizure, you know, usually that's going to be, and I don't have a number on this. I've heard different things over the years about this, you know, how much do you have to drink to actually withdraw enough from alcohol to have a seizure? Mm. Um, I mean, when I was a resident, people were telling me that you had to drink the equivalent of a case of beer a day oh, and wow. stop that. You know, mm. I've certainly seen people who drink a lot less than that who stopped mm. it and were diagnosed with alcohol withdrawal seizure. That's the only thing they were ever diagnosed with. Mm. The problem with alcoholics mm. is their, their blood's a little bit thinner, right? They fall mm. down a lot. They wind up hitting their head many mm. times and they have like mild TBIs or sometimes even brain bleeds. So then they, and then they have another source for seizures. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It gets uh, into a muddy clinical picture. Yes, for, it for gets very complicated very quickly. Yeah. Makes sense. And another uh, thing that I feel like doesn't come up as much on the consult service, but just in my own uh, preparation for this interview, is the idea of um, acute symptomatic versus remote seizures um, in the setting of like a acute brain insult, be it a, a TBI or maybe meningitis. Um, could you maybe chat a little bit about what the difference is between those two? Yeah, so, I mean, it's all changed now. Again, the ILAE has uh, had their clause in the definitions again. Uh, but the old definition used to be symptomatic seizures, mm -hmm. uh, idiopathic seizures, and cryptogenic seizures. So those are the three mm -hmm. kinds. 
Mm-hmm. And symptomatic seizures are ones where you could say, you know, it's not that seizure, it's not that the seizure is symptomatic, like it gives you clinical symptoms. It's that the seizure is a symptom of something else going on, mm-hmm. right? So something else happened and caused a seizure. So that's symptomatic has to do really it's more structural metabolic. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's a structural change in the brain, including an infection that leaves behind, you know, changes, structural changes in the brain that you mm-hmm. can still see on MRI skin sometimes too, but Mm-hmm. Um, but, or a metabolic process that is causing enough functional problems in the brain that you can have um, seizures. So, so that's been changed now. The, the symptomatic has been changed to structural metabolic. Mm-hmm. The idiopathic, which in every other branch of medicine means we don't know, is mm-hmm. actually presumed genetic. Mm-hmm. So that's been changed to genetic. Okay. And then cryptogenic, which is really you don't know, has been changed to unknown. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> so, so symptomatic yeah. seizures, there's a reason for the seizure that you can point to like if somebody has a tbi or a stroke or something else like that mm-hmm. or, or an infection and you can point to it and say um that's the cause of your seizure now if it happens within you know very recently or currently then you mm-hmm. call that an acute symptomatic seizure mm-hmm. if it happened if you had something you can point to as a cause for the seizures from the past you call that a remote symptomatic seizure mm-hmm. right so um acute symptomatic seizures are a little bit different than remote symptomatic because an acute symptomatic seizure may not mean you have epilepsy, even if you have more than one mm-hmm. um, in, in, say, a week. Um, for TBI, it's the, that, that's the cutoff of seven days. Mm-hmm. For stroke, now the cutoff is seven days. It used to be 14 days. Um, but now the, they've kind of evened that up. They're both seven days. So if you have um, a seizure right after an insult, you can just say, that's just, that's just a, another effect of what just happened. Mm-hmm. And we don't necessarily have to treat you for epilepsy. You don't necessarily have epilepsy. Mm-hmm. If you go a month, you know, you go beyond seven days out and you're two months out or two years out and you have a seizure, mm-hmm. then you can say like, especially for TBI, one yeah. seizure has an 80% risk of having more seizures. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, basically, you basically say somebody has post-traumatic epilepsy at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So. And this, that is, it was all a fascinating uh, learning point for me when I discovered it. Cause you would think, Especially when you see a patient in the hospital for like stroke and then they have a seizure afterwards in the acute setting, you would think, oh, now they've got maybe uh, seizures as a complication of their stroke. But it's sort of this acute time window, as you just described, where it could just be their brain recovering and not necessarily indicative of their long-term seizure risk. So I think that was big for me. Um, great. And so if we take that those criteria and apply them to Mr. Oklahoma, so as I mentioned, as we're kind of looking through his uh, medical history um, to try to figure out if there was a specific provoking factor, um, let's just imagine his, his wife said, otherwise in normal health, um, nothing too concerning beforehand. We sort of mentioned trying to differentiate between convulsive syncope versus seizures versus non-epileptic events. It doesn't give us a history of lightheadedness or dizziness or um, anything, heart palpitations before that might um, lead us to believe he had a he syncopized and then had convulsions and nothing that uh, definitively jumps out as non-epileptiform events, sort of this um, both arms and legs shaking and, and urination, usually things that I all associate with a, a epileptic seizure. Or And so then um, we looked at his medications, and his medications, the aspirin, the clopidogrel, inhaler, renindine, and valsartan, are not uh, medications that are typically associated with increasing the risk of seizures. 
And so he's a guy that, at least on our history and initial evaluation, doesn't seem to have a, a provoking factor. Um, then in terms of further works up for these patients, so typically in the ED, they'll get some form of head imaging. Um, do you have a, a preference uh, for patients with new onset seizure, um, head CT versus brain MRI? Uh, <clears throat> so the recommendations for that, you know, for new onset seizure, the workup that you do is an EEG and head imaging. Mm-hmm. And they say at least get a head CT. Mm-hmm. So in the ER, that's probably what you're going to get, mm-hmm. the head CT. Uh, there is a, another line on the recommendations to say MRI if you have if you can. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times people come to us and they've already had an MRI, but in, in, in a lot of times that's not an epilepsy protocol MRI. So there is other literature that shows that an epilepsy protocol MRI is better than a routine MRI, mm-hmm. regular MRI. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly if they only had a head CT, we always get an MRI because mm-hmm. they're just you know head CT is just not. Um, it's just not sensitive enough for a lot of the causes of seizures. You're not going to see, you know, for example, you know, 30, it used to be about 40%, but now it's like 30% of adult epilepsies, triple epilepsy, a lot of those patients have MTS. You're never going to see them. You're very rarely are you ever going to see MTS on a head CT. Yeah. Right? So that's, you're definitely going to need um, MRI for that. Uh, but there can be many other things uh, on a head C, on a MRI that you're going to find that you just can't see on a head CT. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So. And is the, do you know what they're specifically doing with the epilepsy protocol that's making it different than normal MRIs? Um, it has, to, uh, there's a few extra sequences. Uh, you know, uh, one big thing that's different is the number of coronal sequences that they do. Mm-hmm. So a routine MRI is mostly axial. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're looking, if you want to get a really good look at the temporal lobes, you need to go all the way from the front, all the way through and beyond and past the back of the brain mm-hmm. um, and do fine cuts in the coronal plane through the temporal lobes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, a big part of it. We do get SWI with that or some sort of, um, you know, uh, imaging to look for bleeding or look for cavernomas or look for DVAs that are socially cavernomas. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, probably the sequence that you get the least information out of that you could sacrifice if you needed to would be the contrast imaging. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, the epilepsy product MRI usually has a very good... Um, MP rage or like a good volumetric T1 image mm-hmm. that you can reconstruct and, and look at in three in three D. Oh. Uh, so awesome. that that can be really helpful too. But that's but but mostly it's you know if you look at it, if you just put it up on the screen look at the thumbnails it's going to be the difference is like how much coronal images you get. I see fascinating and you brought up um, and I'm going to butcher the name uh, uh, mesial temporal sclerosis. Uh, mesial temporal sclerosis. Yeah. Mesial temporal sclerosis and um, this is something that especially uh, can be missed seemingly sometimes on a normal MRI. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> yeah. um, as you just mentioned, it, it can be a fairly subtle signing finding. And based on my review of the literature, it seems like, as you just mentioned, the coronal's best. You sort of look at the two temporal lobes and kind of compare one to the other. If there's any evidence of atrophy, if there's any evidence of, of damage to one, um, that might be an indication. Are there other things you're looking for on the MRI or? Yeah, if you're looking, at, if you're taking a really good look at the at the uh, hippocampi, first off, you got to familiarize yourself with where that is, where to look on the MRI scan. Yeah. You're comparing the two sides against each other. Um, you should get a sense for um, even malrotation. So, um, you know, if you you know, you, usually those are pretty horizontal structures. Sometimes mm-hmm. on the side where it's abnormal, where it's abnormally formed, it'll be malrotated a lot of times down. Mm-hmm. You know, a little bit kind of tilted down mm-hmm. uh, laterally. Um, a lot of times, too, if it get, it'll get scarred down. So if you look at the pathology of, of MTS, 
um, like after you do a surgery on somebody, you know, there's, there's gliosis, so there's more glia, and there's mm-hmm. loss of neurons. Mm-hmm. So it becomes, and the surgeons will tell you, it's harder and rubberier mm. and wider looking. And on the MRI scan, it's brighter looking. It's hyper intense a lot of times. Um, yeah. And, you know, for the, on an MRI scan, it has an, enough resolution to actually see the different layers of the hippocampus as they kind of jelly roll their way around the way they mm-hmm. formed. Mm-hmm. So you can look for that layering, that internal architecture, and mm-hmm. you can see how that gets lost uh, sometimes mm-hmm. um, on the MRI scan. Mm-hmm. And certainly, you know, it's right there next to the, um, the, the, the lateral, the temporal horns, the lateral ventricles are right there. Mm-hmm. So sometimes that can give you a clue, even on the CT scan, that you have a bigger mm-hmm. uh, temporal horn Right next uh, to the yeah. hippocampus, and that may be because it's like dilatation is vacuum. The hippocampus has gotten smaller, and it's just creating more space, mm-hmm. right? So, um, so that's what you kind of look for, and you want to look all the way through the, the head, body, and tail because there are different versions of MTS that affect just one segment of the hippocampus. So sometimes you'll see it um, um, terminate prematurely, or, mm-hmm. or things like that. Fantastic. And other than uh, the mesial temporal cirrhosis, pretty much we're looking for any kind of structural abnormality in the brain that's going to predispose the person to have a, a seizure. Yeah, generally speaking, you're looking for structural changes. So that could be encephalocele,s you know, those parts of the brain that are, that, are, that are stuck down in little pits, like the retinoid pits on the bottom of the, of the uh, middle fossa, mm. or sticking through the holes in the skull, like the foramenal valley. Mm. Um, or um, so that's. You know, the more you look, the more you find of those, actually. Um, that's kind of like a newer thing that we're discovering more and more. But uh, you can look for tumors. Tumors are, have a huge, you know, you look for a stroke, mm-hmm. uh, traumatic brain injury, um, uh, cavernomas, vascular malformations. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, you'll, you know, rarely you'll find things like, you know, hemangioma and Weber syndrome or tumors and tumor sclerosis. So, you know, a lot of things that the child neurologist will will be more likely to find than us. They'll have, usually have that figured out before they ever get to us. But. Yeah, makes sense. And you mentioned the, uh, the EEG is also something that we get. And I think when I was a, a younger, more green neurologist, I assumed that we'd get the routine EEG. It would sort of capture the seizure. We'd be able to, <laughs> to characterize it, and we'd have more of a definitive idea. Um, but I found rarely is, uh, is that the case. And I think a lot of the times, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, um, that you're looking for kind of sequelae of a seizure, um, be it maybe focal slowing on one slide or epileptiform discharges, which might show that the brain's a little bit more hyperactive, or there are other things that you're looking for on that uh, EEG that you're getting? Yeah, no, I think you've you got it. Um, it's uncommon when you get an EEG after a seizure, even if somebody just had a seizure, it's uncommon to see another seizure yeah. on the EEG, because usually those people have been treated. Now, sometimes mm-hmm. you do, and then you, then you got your answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but... Uh, so, but a lot of the times you just look for interact. These are interictal findings, you know, things that you're seeing between seizures. So a lot of times that's focal slowing, which is kind of a soft sign. You know, focal slowing is mm-hmm. non-specific. Mm-hmm. Um, if there, if you don't have another explanation, then a seizure might be your explanation. Um, and sometimes you'll, you know, you look at the EG and say this left side's slow, and then you go back and and you know that person had a right side of Todd's or something like that. Mm-hmm. Todd's paralysis. They were weak on that side, or they shook on that side, stiffened and shook on that side, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it kind of fits together pretty well. Um, a lot of times you can see discharges, and that can be really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, temporal discharge, discharge can be coming from, from anywhere. Um, if you have somebody that you th- might have generalized epilepsy, they're more likely to have interactive discharges than somebody who has focal epilepsy, mm-hmm. usually. You're mm-hmm. more likely to see um, 
abnormalities that are seizure-specific abnormalities, like discharges or seizures in the first 24 to 48 hours after somebody's had a seizure. Mm-hmm. So it is a little bit um, not annoying, but it, it's kind of too bad if somebody comes to my clinic and they had a seizure five months ago mm-hmm. and they've never had an EEG. Well, mm-hmm. So my EEG is probably not going to show anything right interesting yeah uh, but it could and if it did i guess that would be even more evidence that they needed to be treated but yeah <laughs> yeah but yeah decreases as as the the time from the initial seizure and some people you know when i was a resident you know the the talk was we got to do three serial eegs oh, to increase your sensitivity to 75 percent um looking for still looking for interdictive abnormalities but mm-hmm. we tend not to do that these days too much mm-hmm. um, instead of doing serial eegs we'll do more Long, longer duration EGs, 24-hour EGs, or even video EG, mm-hmm. right? So, And with just your regular uh, routine EG that you're getting to work up a new onset seizure, is that just a 30-minute study? Because I know you can sometimes do like an extended one hour. Uh, yeah. Um, the data, I'm trying to think if there's any data to support that. Typically, it's just a routine study. And the routine study, according to um, like ASET, ACID, the uh, Society for Electrodiagnostic Technicians, the American Society for they have standards for what it takes to do a routine EEG. Mm-hmm. And a routine EEG has to be 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times they'll run it to nearly 30 minutes. Um, but uh, personally, I don't find that, you know, personally, I'll do this a lot. And, like, see somebody in clinic, like, well, you had a routine, so let's get an hour long study. And I almost never see anything better on an hour long study than, than Interesting. you know, and, and 20, when I'm reading yeah. it, you know, it's rare that read the first 20 minutes and you find anything different in the next 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah. I, I tend not to do that. I, I probably still do it more than I should, but I don't think it has that helpful. Got it. Super interesting. And we talked about some of the provoking factors in lab work that then might come from wanting to try to figure out those. And a couple of those might be BMP to check for abnormalities within sodium or, or uh, in ordering calcium as well, or magnesium, um, glucose, uh, in terms of sort of looking for like infections, do you will you get maybe a chest X-ray and a UA on most people, or will it sort of be based on their history and presenting um, symptoms? Yeah, you get a CBC. I think if you had a white, if you had a high white count, you know, you can get a leukocytosis just around a seizure, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of times, you know, somebody have a seizure, they've got a white count, and it's you know upper limits like ten point four or whatever, and it's eleven, and they're like, oh, they've got an infection. Like, eh, it's probably just from the seizure. But if it's like yeah. 18 or 19, it's like, okay, that's not from the seizure. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, if you have a high white count, then you start looking for signs. And, and, and uh, you know, and that person, especially if they had a fever, mm-hmm. uh, then you are then you start thinking about doing an infectious workup. But that would include urine and chest x-ray and, and maybe an LP mm-hmm. um, in the right, you know, if they did have a seizure after mm-hmm. all. So, mm-hmm. and, and somebody had a fever and a white count, I probably uh, would get it. If they had fever, white count, and signs of pneumonia, you'd, you, know, you might want to do it then too. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes you don't get anything with that. And you, but uh, there's some, some areas of infection that people miss, like skin infections, mm-hmm. you, know, wound, you know, skin wounds that are infected. Um, mm-hmm. You got to look for that. And sometimes people forget to do that. Um, yeah. but, uh, but definitely, especially in, you know, some people who are, you know, for example, bedridden people, or they've had like cerebral palsy, or they're wheelchair bound, or things like that. They can have ulcers that are infected. That's a great point. Yeah, yeah. So doing sort of a comprehensive evaluation for those. And would you consider a lot of the times we'll get a UA, and it'll be kind of maybe plus minus infection. They'll maybe have some um, leukosterase and a couple bacteria. We're sort of waiting on the culture. 
is a UA and maybe uh, someone who's a little bit older uh, enough of a provoking factor to cause a seizure? It's hard. Um, I don't know that I'd ever chalk up a new onset seizure in an older person from a UTI or really any any UTI. I mean, I think it's possible, Mm -hmm. Um, but I I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I've ever seen that happen where somebody who was older just had a UTI and a seizure and that was your provoking factor. Mm-hmm. Um, again, not impossible, I, I suppose, but it seems pretty unlikely to me. I don't know. Have, mm-hmm. have you come across any, anything in your, in your prep for that? Yeah. Uh, nothing, um, uh, research wise online, but I, I think we, we check UAs all the time on our patients with breakthrough seizures and so not necessarily new onset seizures and they'll have a, maybe a mild, uh, UTI and, and, we chalk it up to that, but yeah, we used to do that all the time too for you know MS recrudescence or stroke recrudescence or you know things like that. Um, if they yeah. have a U, if they have a UA a UTI, it's like, okay, that's what it was. Yeah, <clears throat> it's a yeah. little different than a new uh, than you know considering provoked seizure. Somebody who doesn't if somebody has seizures mm-hmm. and they had a UTI, then we chalk that up to the UTI. That could be a potential. all the time. Gotcha. But that's fascinating. But yeah, for new onset seizures, it would have to be uh, a rare case where that yeah. itself would be enough of a driving force. Yeah, like the number one, the number one, you know, trigger that people report if you survey epileptics is stress. Mm. So stress can trigger seizures all the time in somebody who already has seizures. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, but I don't think there's a, you know, you never say never. But I think it's pretty rare to somebody just who was otherwise healthy with a healthy brain have enough stress to cause them just like psychological stress mm-hmm. to have a seizure. Now they can have enough physical stress in their body to have a lot of other changes. Mm-hmm. They could probably do it. Um, yeah. But uh, and I kind of put like a UTI and a healthy, you know, otherwise healthy individual, even if it was older. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that I've never had a seizure before. I'm not sure that that would be enough to push them over the edge. But mm-hmm. you never say never. Mm-hmm. And uh, someone, uh, so we chatted about before, that sleep deprivation can be a little bit of a provoking factor, at the very least, um, increase your likelihood to seize if you're already predisposed. Will that, if you get a history of that, maybe in Mr. Oklahoma's case, if he says, you know, just started a new job, I've kind of been up the last couple nights stressing out about how I'm going to make my finances work, would that necessarily be something that you could say that's a provoking factor? It could be. I mean, if he really hasn't slept for days. Um, or just we got very little sleep over days, then then you could then you can maybe consider that as a provoked seizure. Mm-hmm. Um, to have two seizures in a day provoked, um, that's a little bit mm-hmm. tougher, I would think. But sure, could be. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I, I I wouldn't. I mean, I think lack of sleep for days on end is, a, is more likely than a UTI to potentially be a provoking factor. Although sometimes it's hard. I, I'm, I'm often in my clinic debating this in my head sometimes, like. Well, you had these two or three things happening, but was it enough? Mm-hmm. You know, um, or was it really that these things are not really provoking factors that you had a provoked seizure? It really triggers for somebody who has an underlying propensity for seizures. Yeah, um, and maybe and then you can go back and sometimes you'll find a history of people that they had a few things in their past that could have been seizures, mm-hmm. um, and then and maybe this is just enough to push them over the edge to really declare themselves. Mm-hmm. So it can be quite tricky, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's something that comes up too in, in patients that I uh, see sometimes in clinic who um, we may identify a provoking factor like a UTI for their breakthrough seizures. And then the question becomes, do we change their medications or increase their medications? And um, you might think in one context, okay, UTI is going to resolve. It's not going to be a, a big issue. 
but for my uh, bed-bound patients maybe who have an indwelling Foley, and I think, well, this is probably someone who's going to get a lot of UTI. So it might make sense to bump them up to a higher dose, sort of just anticipating um, that they're going to be at sort of an increased risk. And I, I could see also in a situation of someone who's super stressed and maybe can't get a lot of sleep because of their job, that could also be something that drives the decision. And something I encountered um, in doing my research was that uh, a provoked seizure um, uh, will always be a generalized uh, seizure. Is that a true fact? Um, you know, that's the classic teaching. Uh, mm-hmm. that if you have a provoked seizure, it's going to be a generalized seizure. You shouldn't have focal features. Um, mm-hmm. I know there's a literature that people have been diagnosed with provoked seizures that have had focal features, mm-hmm. um, right? So there is a literature on that. Um, I think if anybody that you think might have had a provoked seizure had focal features, I think you have to be extra cautious about really looking through their workup, really looking through their MRI, their EEG, just to make sure um, – and um, because that's that's pretty uncommon, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, impossible, no. Um, you never say never with seizures, mm-hmm. so, you know. So you know why would a metabol- you know even metabolic derangements can cause things that are more focal sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. You know, in, in people that have inborn errors of metabolism or things like that, they can have focal seizures. Well, that should affect the whole brain. So why do they have focal seizures? Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> So it's kind yeah. of the same thing with provoked. It should affect the whole brain, so they should have a generalized seizure. But so, mm. so you never, never say never. Mm. The classic teaching is that um, provoked seizures are generalized, uh, and focal features should make you. And I think I think it's true that focal features should make you be a little more suspicious that something else can be going on. Gotcha. That's that's super helpful. No, and then um, when you're evaluating a, a patient after a new onset seizure, are there specific tweaks that you make to the neurological exam, or, or things you specifically focus on? Well, I mean, I, I guess if you're, you know, if you're in the ER, you're going to be, you know, really examining somebody looking for mental status. I think that's a really you know, huge key, right? So we had a seizure, they're in, they got dosed, now they're kind of out of it, right? You're not, gonna, you're not getting a good neurological exam right up front. Uh, so you have to come, come back and do serial exams. What do you want to see the person waking up and starting to make more sense and understand things better? And, of course, you want on your exam look for signs of focality you know, for the most part, right? Mm-hmm. You want to look for signs of subtle seizures. Are, do they still have a twitch of their lip or a twitch of their thumb? Mm-hmm. Um, or are they, you know, doing little jerks, uh, mm-hmm. little myoclonic jerks mm-hmm. um, or, you know, things like that. Uh, obviously, if, you know, somebody had a seizure, they got treated and you're an hour out and they're still not waking up, you're getting an EEG. You're getting a yeah. EEG to make sure they're not having seizures. Yeah. Um, if you're, uh, somebody had a seizure and they're and they're waking up and their NCT is normal and everything looks fine. It doesn't look like they had a stroke or some other bleed or a tumor or anything causing it, but they're weak on one side. That mm. can be a big clue that they had a seizure that was stronger on the other side of their brain, right, the contralateral side. Yeah. So you're definitely going to be looking for that. Um, and obviously you can look for many of the other things we talked about already in terms of their vital signs, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you want to make sure that, you know, it's not really an exam. Uh, the vital signs are exam funding, but... Um, mm-hmm. Things like the finger stick too. That kind of goes along with vitals a little bit, um, but uh, vital signs and also um, skin exam and listening to you know for somebody who's just in the ER, you want to make sure that you know you don't get you know listen to their heart, listen to their lungs, mm-hmm. you know especially if you're thinking about somebody for differentiating between a seizure and syncope, you know, yeah, uh, checking you know looking at their uh, looking at the monitors, their blood pressure, but you know checking their pulse, checking their you know do they have a regular heartbeat. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and are they skipping beats? You know, are they are the heartbeat really slow for some reason? Mm-hmm. You know, so you're paying attention to all those sorts of things. Yeah. You know, with with an eye to was this cardiac, you know, cardiopulmonary, or was this really, you know, like having an effect on the uh, on the brain, or was this mm-hmm. really a seizure? Yeah. Yeah. No, the, those are all uh, great points and great things, and I, especially with the sort of syncope question, I found a couple times it's been helpful. Um, to get orthostatic vital signs um, and sort of see because fairly frequently it, it'll come up where I'll sort of check orthostatics on a patient that I'm like, I don't know if it's syncope or seizure and their blood pressure will be like 60 over 30 or something super low. And then I, I think that takes me down a, a completely different um, line. Yeah, when I bring people over to video EG, a lot of times I'll have them do orthostatics when they first get there and, uh, and sometimes they even put them on telemetry. Depends on how mm-hmm. suspicious I am of what might be going on, and sometimes I order vital signs with every event, or finger stick blood sugar, or blood sugars with every event. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can, you know, so I will expand that kind of evaluation sometimes mm-hmm. to kind of be supportive evidence to go along with what I'm seeing on the EEG. Makes sense. And uh, something that I I learned um, in residency, and I don't know if it's actually true, um, could have it's been residency myth, but the. Um, if you have multiple seizures within a 24-hour period, it, you don't necessarily count those as all separate, uh, discrete events? You don't. Um, the definition for epilepsy is uh, two spontaneous seizures separated by more than 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the clinical definition. Obviously, you can have one seizure or one day of seizures, one 24-hour period of seizures, with other findings in your tests that raise your risk of having additional seizures. That, that could, then you could, you know, so... One seizure or one day seizures could lead to a diagnosis of epilepsy in the right setting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But uh, but yes, they've looked back looked back at that. Um, I think AAN has uh, reviewed the literature quite extensively and 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 and, uh, and determined that there are certain factors that uh, raise your risk of having further seizures, and there are certain factors that don't. And having two seizures in the same twenty four hour period did not raise your risk of having seizures later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's just a super helpful clinical pearl to know um, because for family members, it freaks them out when their loved one has a seizure and then they have another seizure. And then I think they, they really want an intervention. And especially if this is a patient, you wouldn't necessarily start on AEDs. Having that conversation, reviewing that literature, I think can be really helpful. And um, so then if we go back to Mr. Oklahoma's case, so if we imagine, so you come down to do the neurological exam and I sort of mentioned uh, before that he did a couple serial exams and seems like he's waking up, um, gradually uh, returning to baseline. And his wife, who's a collateral source, actually believes that he's back to baseline now. And um, let's imagine we're able to get a, a brain MRI, um, hopefully uh, epilepsy, epilepsy protocol. Um, we get an EEG. Um, EEG, um, let's say, just kind of uh, shows focal slowing maybe on the left side, but no epileptiform discharges, um, no other abnormalities that we can detect. And uh, the blood work all comes back okay. Um, uh, no evidence of um, hypoglycemia or other metabo- metabolic abnormalities. Um, UDS um, shows no evidence of any drugs. Um, lab tests that I um, sometimes see in the ED, and I don't know if it has any uh, clinical utility, is the serum lactate. Do you find that those are helpful? Uh, um, it, it fits a little bit in the category with prolactin, mm-hmm. right? Um, so... I think it can be helpful. You can see an elevated serum lactate or an elevated prolactin in somebody who has a journalized, like a, a complete journalized cyclone seizure mm-hmm. that affects you know, both sides of the brain pretty intensely. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and for the lactate, obviously, they have you know the, the, the lactic acid buildup that you get, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so that can be um, that can be helpful in those situations. I think in general, it doesn't tell you that somebody didn't have a seizure if they didn't go all the way, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess you're talking about you're just thinking about convulsions, like big convulsions. That can be helpful. And there's a literature that serum lactate in those situations can help to differentiate between syncope and non-epileptic. Interesting. Um, uh, but, I, but a lot of times you're not having necessarily big seizures. You can have the smaller seizures that aren't going to cause a prolactin uh, release. Mm-hmm. So prolactin are not, not going to cause lactate to go up. So pro, and, and prolactin in particular, you know, that can go up for many other reasons too. So I've seen that work the other way, that they mm-hmm. had another reason that... Uh, uh, a proactive level went up and they died of some seizure they didn't have seizures. Interesting. Got um, it. So I think it's something you can think about. It's not wrong to order it, um, especially for big convulsions and, and can be helpful. A lot of times you don't need to get the lactate because you'll see the in, the, the metabolic anion gap um, mm. acidosis yeah. anyway. Yeah. Uh, um, so, and you assume that's a lactic acidosis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, mystery, mystery solved. <laughs> And uh, yeah, so so in Mr. Oklahoma's case, we'll imagine we uh, ED's already checked the serum lactate; it comes back normal. Um, there's nothing else uh, too concerning on their exam on his exam. Um, no focality, nothing indicative of another underlying neurological disorder. And uh, so then you um, have a conversation with him, and the decision tree as a clinician is whether or not to start AEDs um, in this gentleman and. We talked a little bit about sort of provoking factors versus unprovoked um, provoking factors, uh, typically leading, if you can identify a provoking factor and imagine that it's going to be transient, it wouldn't necessarily be someone you would start on long-term AEDs. Um, In the case of the uh, unprovoked uh, situation, which would be Mr. Oklahoma's situation, um, what would your thoughts be about uh, starting AEDs? Um, Yeah, so if in somebody had a first unprovoked seizure of life, um, or the first spontaneous seizure of life, uh, then, uh, you know, what are the chances you're going to have uh, additional seizures later on down the road? That's what you're really thinking about. So you do look at your workup. <clears throat> you mentioned an EEG with left, left-sided slowing. Now, that would be, it could be enough that would make you think, mm. maybe I should put it, but if they had a normal EEG, yep. let's say they had a normal EEG, a normal That's MRI, it. normal head CT, everything's normal, you don't think it's provoked, you think it's unprovoked, mm. um, then um, the chances... You know, the, the number I was quoted was 30%. I know that number varies anywhere from 21 to 45%, I believe, in the, mm-hmm. in the AEN guidelines. But certainly less than 50% chance they're going to go on to have another seizure. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that situation, you can talk to the patient about what they want to do. You know, you have, there is a chance. It's a less than 50% chance, but there's a chance you could have another seizure. Mm-hmm. Do you want to be on a medicine? For some people, they'll say yes, but most people largely will say no, mm-hmm. Right. They'd rather not take a medicine every day uh, if there's greater than fever and chance they're never going to have this again anyway. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it can be an offer if you, um, but then you need to, you know, I do counsel them if if you have another seizure, mm. you know, more than 24 hours after this and it's another spontaneous seizure, then mm. the chances you'll have a third seizure, a fourth seizure, and so on, mm. then that's, you know, like a 70% chance. Mm-hmm. At which point, then you recommend a treatment, right? Yeah. The same thing could be true if they had abnormalities on their MRI or EEG or head CT that go along with increasing the risk of spontaneous seizures to like 60% or higher. Mm-hmm. And if you're in that situation, then you're going to say two-thirds plus chance, roughly, 
mm-hmm. you're going to have more seizures. So you know, we're going to recommend that you take a treatment now. Makes sense. And you, you pointed out if the EEG does show evidence of, of right-sided slowing or just unilateral slowing, that in and of itself might be enough with this patient's history to convince you to start AEDs? It could. I mean, that's an abnormality, especially if you don't have another explanation for it, mm-hmm. right? So if, if they have a history of migraines um, mm-hmm. that always cause them to have, for like a left-sided slowing EEG, if they have a history of migraines that always cause them to feel a little weak on the right or have tingling on the right or something like that, mm-hmm. then maybe you chalk it up to complicated migraine and not necessarily give them a medicine. Um, or if they had some minor thing that you saw in a head CT that you, that you didn't think was enough of a structural abnormality but explain the slowing on the EEG, mm-hmm. uh, then maybe you would... Um, you know, they have like a big white matter lesion or something on that side from, mm-hmm. you know, a non-specific white matter lesion mm-hmm. uh, from a, a deeper ischemic uh, car, uh, uh, reason, but which which wouldn't really explain um, seizures, right? Because that's usually, you know, it's not close to the gray-white junction or it's not in the, gray, in the cortex. Yeah. So if you had something like that, then it was explained on the, you know, you could explain away the, the focal slowing, um, then maybe you wouldn't. But if you couldn't explain it away, then you might. Yeah. And you brought up a good point, too, in mentioning that um, usually abnormalities uh, on MRI are typically going to be cortical abnormalities if they're going to predispose patients to seizures. I got chewed out by a senior resident when I was a junior because I had a gentleman who had um, like a history of a a sort of thalamic, um, uh, I think it was like a glioma, kind of a benign glioma that was removed. And so I got the MRI and said, oh, you know, thalamic glioma. This is sort of a structural abnormality predisposing him to seizures. I'm going to start AEDs. And my uh, senior resident was like, well, it's not necessarily a cortical abnormality that I would think. And um, the person eventually went on to have uh, a diagnosis of non-epileptic events. And so it was probably not the best to then start them on AEDs. And um, so could you chat a little bit about that? Maybe the distinction between where a potential lesion is on the brain MRI and the risk of seizures. Yeah, but I mean, by and large, seizures come from cortex, and that's that includes the cortex that kind of wraps around the mesial part of the brain too, right? So, like the mm-hmm. you know, mesial temporal sclerosis, that's on the middle part of the brain, but it's still cortex, mm-hmm. right? It's just in the, in the middle part. So, deep gray nuclei, not really thought to do it. You know, brain stems not thought to do it. Cerebellum's not thought to do it. So, mm-hmm. if you have if you have abnormal structural abnormalities in those places, mm-hmm. then you don't really can't really. It's hard to explain seizures like that. Yeah. I mean, there are some researchers that say that those areas can have seizures, but mm-hmm. um, so it's a bit of a, of a debate. And certainly there are ways that gray, that deep gray or deeper brain areas can cause seizures like, you know, the classic example of like a hypothalamic hematoma that mm-hmm. causes gelastic epilepsy. Mm-hmm. You, know, that's pro- you know, that's probably irritating. It's maybe not coming from the hypothalamus. It may be mm-hmm. irritated the cingulate cortex that's right there. Oh, and that's that's more probably more where the gelastic semiology comes from. Gotcha. So, um, but, you know, that it, it's, it's debated. I, I think by and large, though, you can think about, you know, any cortex outside of the areas that I mentioned, um, mm-hmm. mesial or lateral, could be a source of seizures. So when we do mm-hmm. steroid EG recordings, you know, you know, we're not seeing seizures come from the white matter, right? And mm-hmm. we're not sampling yeah. from... Cerebellum, and we're not sampling from brain stem. You know, those places aren't really thought to, to be the cause of, of seizures. But, yeah. but anywhere else, you know, could be. Why yeah. I would, you know, make a point about white matter lesions. You know, obviously, you know, multiple sclerosis, those patients rarely have seizures, but sometimes they do. Mm-hmm. And part of that's because, you know, of uh, 
plaques that maybe get too close to the gray-white junction, or there's just gray matter changes that also happen in MS mm. that are thought about a little bit less. Um, but also sometimes just in a patient has a white matter lesion, you sometimes have to be really careful that you're not seeing that's being a clue of something else that's happening. Like um, if that's, you know, if whenever I see a white matter lesion, especially if it's kind of streaking from the ventricle up to the bottom of a sulcus, mm. that could be something called transmantle sign. Mm. And then that could be a telltale sign for something like a focal cord dysplasia. Mm. So, um, but, so I always look for that really closely for white matter lesions. But generally speaking, we see a lot of white matter lesions that are nonspecific and don't really explain the seizures. Yeah. And that brings me to another thing that we we were emailing back and forth preparing for this podcast. I sort of mentioned something I had encountered in the literature of like uh, uh, patients over 60, if the brain MRI otherwise looks okay. Um, I saw one guideline just recommending treating, assuming that it was like a chronic microvascular disease, given the uh, increased incidence once you get to that age group. Um, it's debatable. I think it's a little bit, I don't think there's a standard of care for that. Um, I've, I've, when we emailed about that, I went back and looked at some different people who wrote about, you know, basically articles entitled epilepsy of the elderly Yeah. <laughs> and, and they were split. You know, some people said you should just treat that person. And I've known doctors that have said that too, who are, you know, former fellows or out in practice now that I can always treat that guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, it, but it, I don't know that it's, I don't know that necessarily that's, you know, the right thing to do. Mm. Um, I think it is controversial. I don't think there's a, a, a definitive answer there about mm. whether you should or shouldn't. I probably wouldn't unless I had a stronger reason to, or the patient just wanted to be treated. Uh-huh. You know, some patients, you know, if they're coming to my clinic and they've, even they have one seizure and I'm like, I don't have a good explanation here. And your tests look okay. Um, you don't have a high risk, but you know, you do have this, and they're like, you know, for them, maybe that's enough. Interesting. Or they got, or, or somebody in the ER put them on Keppra, and it's like, mm. I don't think you needed to be put on Keppra. Let's mm. go ahead and take it off, and they're like, Nah, let's just keep it on. Yeah, <laughs> it makes a lot. Of, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you know, there's a retired guideline that doesn't exist anywhere. You can't find it. But at the time I took epilepsy boards, if you had a normal MRI and a normal EEG after a first seizure of life, unprovoked mm. seizure, uh, your chances of having another seizure is twenty five percent. Mm-hmm. But uh, for whatever reason, I think the, the literature on that got so old, they, they retired that guideline. Interesting. Yeah. And, uh, okay, so uh, for Mr. Oklahoma's case, we, no provoking factor, no structural abnormalities on the brain MRI and EEG, if it would change it to just being a normal EEG. So this is something we, someone we wouldn't want to start AEDs on. And uh, do you uh, do any kind of like a benzo bridge or, or any other treatment? Or we just sort of say... This is probably a one-time isolated thing. I mean, usually for a provoked seizure, uh, if you think talk about a provoked seizure, then you treat the provoking factors. And as long as those provoking factors are managed, you don't probably don't need to give them anything, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for somebody with new onset seizure, I have never given put somebody a benzo bridge for a new a new seizure, first time seizure, mm-hmm. um, even if it's two and twenty four hours. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that it's wrong to do that. Um, mm-hmm. I certainly put you know certainly give a lot of my epileptic patients bridges coming out of the ER. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but is that something that people are doing these days? Giving people bridges for new onset seizure? No, I, I guess I was thinking more of like breakthrough seizures. Um, and where there's maybe a provoking factor, like in the case of a UTI, you see that UTI. I do that quite a bit actually. Yeah. Yeah. If it's something that's going to linger for a couple days and kind of get back mm-hmm. to your other point about somebody who, you know, 
is triggering uh, uh, an epileptic, a known epileptic, to have more seizures. Mm-hmm. If it's something that you can treat, then maybe you don't increase medicines. But if it's something that's going to keep coming up again and again, you can kind of predictably expect it's going to happen again. Mm-hmm. Then I may increase medicines in that case. And I do, you know, quite often. The, the one case that sometimes gives me a little bit of pause with that is if they have, like, and especially now for COVID times, um, if they have a pneumonia. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily want to put them on a bridge. Um, mm-hmm. if, it, if it, you know makes them more tired or reduces their lung, you know, their, how deep, deeply they breathe and yeah, they collapse the lower parts of their lungs and makes their pneumonia worse. Yeah, that's a great point. So I yeah. will sometimes avoid the bridge in that case. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But I don't know any literature on that. That's just, that's just me yeah. trying to be a doctor and think things through. But <laughs> Yeah, no, and I think it's well-directed. Well and when you uh, say bridge, you typically, I'll typically do maybe uh, Ativan, like, 0.5 milligrams twice a day for three days. You yeah, do. typically a three-day bridge. Um, sometimes I'll do a two-day bridge. Depends on what's going on with the person. It's usually half milligram, two milligram mm-hmm. of either Ativan or clonazepam. Got it. And uh, so in Mr. Oklahoma's case, so we're not starting them on medications. Um, is this still someone we'd want to see in follow-up um, afterwards? or? Um, probably not a bad idea. I think anybody that has a new onset seizure, um, if... If, you, if it's a provoked seizure, then probably not. You probably don't need to see that person. But if it was the first unprovoked seizure of life, yeah, you need to follow that person up just to make sure nothing else has happened. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times things will happen and they won't tell anybody. Mm-hmm. But if you kind of force them to come back and, and, and go through things mm-hmm. really well. Uh, and then at least they're, you know, if they don't have anybody on the outside and they're just kind of stuck with um, ERs, you know, that's not mm-hmm. necessially good. If they yeah. establish it even one time, at least they have somebody to call. They can talk to who will know what to tell them. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So yeah. even if you like see them one time and say, call me if you need me, that's, yeah. that's better than telling them, you know, not having that and telling them just go to the ER sometimes. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just leave them hanging and yeah, yeah, yeah. something bad happens. Uh, and uh, in terms of counseling them, um, so you kind of mentioned – do you ever tell patients if they have a new onset seizure, that 25% number? Like uh, I do sometimes. You know, now that I've gone back and looked at it, I've done it this year for as part of the uh, education for the fellowship, but then even you know getting ready for this, too. I couldn't find that guideline anymore. Mm-hmm. It was clearly in existence when I took epilepsy boards in 2016. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Because that was one of the board, board's questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it doesn't exist anymore. I, so I used to tell people that a lot, but I, I think I'm going to have to adjust my numbers based on the, the latest uh, guidelines. Yeah. <laughs> Gotcha. And then uh, in Missouri, the the laws currently, if you have a seizure, you got to wait six months before you can drive. Um, so we always uh, will counsel our patients um, don't drive. And we typically, when we're doing that, sort of give them general seizure precautions. Don't do anything over the next couple months while we're still, you know, fairly confident that you're not going to have a seizure, but are sort of in this window um, that if you were doing that activity might cause you some danger, like uh know, going to high altitudes or if you have a, a newborn baby holding the baby, which could cause problems for the baby. If you have a, a seizure, um, don't cook over an open flame. Um, are there any other um, recommendations or counseling you would give patients? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, seizure precautions, generally speaking, the ones I tell people always about are, you know, don't, you know, there's the driving restrictions and that's to protect you and other people, but don't work at heights. Don't mm-hmm. work over an open flame. Don't use heavy machinery or power tools. Uh, don't go swimming or take baths by yourself, mm-hmm. right? So if somebody has a microwave, they can microwave their food. If they've got an electric burner, that's probably not, it's not an open flame. They're less likely to get the, the big thing you're worried about there is catching your clothes on fire, not mm-hmm. necessarily burning yourself, but catching your clothes on fire because that can kill you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can tell mm-hmm. them to use the back burner. If it's a, if it's a, if it's an electric burner, 
or even a gas burner if that's all they got. Mm. Um, but use the back burner and, you know, put the things on there and then, you know, don't hover over top of it. Mm. Uh, right. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, the baby thing, because I have, you know, that, that does come up quite a bit because I have women who become pregnant and, and they give birth mm. on seizure medicines. And sometimes that time of their life can be bad for seizures. They can have more seizures um, during pregnancy or right after pregnancy. And so that's always a sad thing to tell them, you know, about like you can't hold your baby yeah. or you need to like, you know, go ahead and sit down in a chair and have your husband hand your baby to you yeah. or something Oof. like that. And then yeah. somebody needs to kind of be there and kind of pay attention. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But that, then I will also talk about seizure first aid. So if this is somebody who's had a, a new seizure, it's probably a good idea to talk to them about that, mm-hmm. um, which is things like, you know, if you tell your family, tell your friends, anybody who's going to be around you, your roommate, whoever, that if I have a seizure, you need to get me mm-hmm. down on somewhere flat. Like if I'm on the bed, you can leave me on the bed. Or if I'm on the couch, you can leave me on the couch. But mm-hmm. if I'm standing or sitting, get me down on the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, get me on my side. Let anything, you know, drip out of my mouth. Um, don't stick your fingers in there. Don't put a leather strap or a spoon in there. Mm-hmm. Um, move anything away from me that's hard or sharp that I can't bang into it. Mm-hmm. And then just stay with me and, and, and time the event. Right? Mm-hmm. So, and and you, most seizures are going to be done in three minutes or less. In fact, most seizures are done in one minute or less. Mm-hmm. But if it goes on for more than five minutes, call 911. Mm-hmm. If at any point along the seizure you think I've seriously hurt myself or my, my heart's not beating very well or I'm not breathing very well at all, mm-hmm. go ahead and call call the ambulance. Mm-hmm. So that's seizure first aid. We'll always tell people about that. Yeah. Um, and then a lot of times people come in and they say, I had the seizure and I went to the ER. I don't want to go to the ER again for another seizure. Can I skip the ER? Mm. I think early on that's a hard question. Um, mm. But if they've had a couple seizures, they know what their seizures are and they, and they have a, an, a, you know, everything's been pretty typical, pretty stereotypical. Mm. And then, then I do all tell people, if you have a typical seizure and it lasts a typical amount of time, you recover in a typical fashion, you don't have to go to the ER. Mm. Right. So people don't like to go to the ER over and over and over again if they if they don't have to. Absolutely, yeah. That's a that's a whole ordeal. Yeah, no, that's that's great advice, and that that's a, a great reminder too for just ways to talk about uh, seizures with my patients as well. Um, fantastic, and so I think uh, that's a good point to to do a little bit of a wrap up. Um, I can kind of give a, a quick summary of, of the things we chatted about, and if I leave anything out, please uh, jump in and um, uh, offer it. Uh, so. In evaluating patients for new onset seizures, um, the first big thing you're asking on the history are just uh, questions to try to elicit um, maybe things that will build your case for um, an epileptic seizure versus other types of um, convulsive type events like convulsive syncope, non-epileptic events. And so that's um, sort of preceding events before the uh, seizure. Was there a specific aura that um, the patient noticed? Um, was there a witness shaking? Is there a collateral source that you can have who can give a good description of what happened? Um, is there shaking with, in one arm or one leg on one side or, or both legs? Is there head turning associated with it or eye deviation? Um, those two things being more associated with a, a seizure um, from an uh, epilepsy. Um, sort of asking about urination, um, tongue biting, um, and then sort of afterwards were they confused um, or did they uh, kind of regain um, their cognition pretty rapidly? Um, and then sort of starting this hunt for provoking factors that might have uh, caused a seizure. And those can be metabolic abnormalities. Um, they can be uh, prescription drugs or illicit drugs. Um, uh, some of the big uh, players in prescription drugs um, being things like um, uh, bupropion or Wellbutrin, um, different types of antibiotics, um, cefepime, 
um, uh, different types of uh, pain medications, uh, uh, tramadol, um, and kind of looking, especially patients, uh, if they're maybe on one of those, but if they've been on it for a while, um, probably lesser likelihood that that would provoke the seizure. But if it's a new medication, and especially of those um, that being more concerned for that, looking for potential signs of infection, um, and leukocytosis, particularly if it's a little bit higher, um, can be indicative. Um, as uh, Dr. Day mentioned, uh, a smaller leukocytosis can just be a sign of uh, the seizure itself. Um, and then uh, getting an EEG and a brain MRI, um, epilepsy protocol on the brain MRI is preferable if possible. Um, and looking for structural abnormalities and also um, abnormalities on the EEG. And then if, if all that comes back normal and the patient's recovering, um, sort of following a, a typical uh, recover back to normal on serial exams, um, then that wouldn't necessarily be a patient that you would start on uh, AEDs and you would see them and uh, follow up and, and hopefully they continue to do well. Um, and then you'd go through some counseling and seizure precautions. Um, any uh, things that I missed in, in given that summary? I think you got yeah. it. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much uh, for, for chatting with me, Dr. Day. This is uh, in- incredibly informative. That concludes my interview with Dr. Day. If you like what you're hearing, please consider subscribing to my podcast, liking me on Facebook, following me on Instagram at Brainboy Neurology, or on Twitter at Brainboy Neuro. And as always, feel free to pass along any comments or suggestions. The opinions expressed on this show are those of Brainboy Neurology and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of the places of employment of the Brainboy Neurology staff. The opinions expressed on this podcast are meant for entertainment and education and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified, board-certified practicing clinician.